I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to the flagship podcast of Haya, the only podcast that knows both karate and crazy, where we discuss martial arts madness and related topics in our own inimitable and irreverent style, and bring you special guests to enlighten and entertain you, our beloved listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully there will be someone out there to hear this because it's going to be great. All right, we got a great show planned for you today. We have an interview with Alan Pittman. Uh, famous martial arts, Bagua instructor, and uh, we have news, we have a general topic discussion on form versus function, and more coming up for you, our gentle listeners. Uh, but let's get the thing started here by letting you know who we are. Uh, my name's David Jones, I am a Bagua instructor and part-time hairdresser to the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it to yourself. Hiya! Nice. Uh, and uh, I've been practicing martial arts since the ripe age of 10. I started out in Ishinru Karate. That's right, Ishinru Karate. And uh, Hiya. Uh, <laughs> after learning to kill an ox with my bare hands, I stopped training martial arts for a while to ride BMX and chase girls. Then after a couple of muggings, got back into it with a stint in Taekwondo. And then I found the love of my life, which is Chinese martial arts, uh, Hungar, hung foot, northern Shaolin with a certain individual you'll meet shortly. You hung what? Yeah, all the way down. <laughs> and uh, wound up uh, training with Alan Pittman, who we'll also meet soon, in Bagua. And I've been doing that ever since. Now, sitting here to my right is my co-host, Craig Kiesling. Hiya. And Hello. he's going to tell you a little bit about himself and probably say hiya three or four more times. I enjoy that quite a bit. Well, hiya, folks. I'm Craig Kiesling. I'm a Northern Shaolin Kung Fu instructor. Um, I also started about the same age as Dave, around 10 years old. Started off with uh, Goju Ryu, uh, karate style. Karate. And uh, worked my way into the uh, Taekwondo and uh, didn't stick around with that too much. I was a kid and didn't have the discipline for it. But uh, worked my way into the Chinese arts and kind of stayed there for Quite a bit. Moved around in a lot of different circles, but uh, found my love of Northern Shaolin Kung Fu and uh, stuck with that quite a bit. But I've, I've played the game of quite a while and messed around different styles. Why don't you list every style you've ever dabbled in, like kind of like an auctioneer at super high rates of speed there, if you could, for us? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll skip on that. <laughs> yeah, it would probably take up half the podcast anyway. Indeed. Okay, well, what we're going to do is, uh, I would say it's breaking from our normal format, but we don't have one yet, (laughs) but uh, due to how long it took us to get this off the ground, we're going to cut straight to our interview with uh, said Alan Pittman, so stand by while we get him on the line. Okay, right now I'd like to welcome Alan Pittman to the podcast. Uh, 
just in lieu of full disclosure here, uh, Alan was my teacher for a long time and is a very close friend. And he's also trained a lot of people in our circle. So we're kind of, we're swinging for a duck first out. <laughs> he won't blame us too much if we screw this up. All right, buddy. Um, so why don't you uh, chime in here, Alan, and tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background in martial arts. Okay, if we're going to stick strictly to martial arts, um, I started doing Taekwondo with Lawrence Huff when I was 12. Then I went to Robert Smith when I was 15. And at 20, 23, I went to Taiwan and I lived with Hungy Men for a year, came home for a year, rested, went back another year and completed work with him, came back and for the next 16, I guess, 16 to 18 years, I taught in Atlanta and in Robert Smith's classes. And it's been pretty much going ever since then. I did manage uh, during that 16 to 18 year period, I did uh, about two years of judo off and on and uh, maybe the equivalent of about a year, year and a half of fencing, mainly with a foil, not an epee in the Western tradition. I learned my archery from uh, my dad and uh, and Dan Quillian, who uh, was one of Howard Hill's students. Howard Hill shot for Errol Flynn in the Robin Hood movie. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, there's several things peppered in there. I studied with Rose Lee, who uh, was... Uh, Beijing teacher for about 25 years and off and on through intermittent trips to England. So she actually had a big influence on me. And that that's actually not very clear on my webpage. I may go back and remedy that. And I did have some other teachers in Taiwan who were so-called hard boxing style teachers. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to touch on with you because, uh, you know, I'm sure you get asked a lot of questions about Bagua specifically, but uh, I've heard you tell stories about some of the other styles you ran across while you were in Taiwan and some of your other travels. So, yeah, we'd love to hear more about Rose Lee. And also, like, uh, you'll come out of the box with things like a version of Lian Chuan that I'd never seen before. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're, where, where did you pick that up, just uh, to be specific for a second? Well, that was the, that was the guerrilla general, Yuan Dao. Who, uh, who lived behind the communist lines in the Nationalist Army for two years and survived. He was the Fujian free fighting champion, and apparently that form was taught to the Nationalist soldiers. Yes, indeed. And so I guess it was kind of a, kind of a coin of exchange in a certain way between boxers to know that form. It's like a point of recognition, but I think you learned it and basically the same style that matches Hong Ting Chan, which is the uh, Shandong style. And I, I learned mm-hmm. the style from Yunnan, which is in the south. So it's stylistically, it's a little different. But you can still spot them as the same form. Oh, oh, oh definitely. It's, it's still Lin Buchuan, yeah. But I actually prefer your, your version <laughs> better than mine. But I've never had time to go back and get it. Your version is the original version that, as far as I know, was taught at the Qingdao Guoshu Institute before the communists. Yes, yes, so indeed. Actually, the old, uh, it's the old fighting version. Good. Well, you know, <laughs> for, for a small fee, I could show you that someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to learn more forms. 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in our discussion topic. There you go. God help us all. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. All right, so um, let's just go ahead and get this part of it out of the way. Uh, tell us, um, you know, again, people are always asking you about your Bogwa training, uh, Hungimun, all of that yeah. stuff. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and regale us a little bit about what it was like to be over there and uh, to train. And then I, the second time you went, you actually lived with him, correct? Yeah, I lived with uh, basically the in-laws. Okay. <laughs> um, he, he was interesting. Basically, I was able to find him because Marnix Wells, who was a Chinese classic scholar, was running a shipping company in Taiwan. I had read a translation of a poem, a Taiji poem, by him, I guess about in the late 70s. Anyway, one of my cronies found him in Taiwan, and Marnix is extremely important to the equation because he's a Chinese classic scholar from uh, Oxford, I believe. So his Chinese is not just fluent. He can read ancient Chinese like he can read Confucius in the original. That's pretty slick. So he he had been on the island about 10 years, and he had studied with Hungi Shang, who said, whatever you do, don't go to the park. And so I said, what are we going to do? After dark or uh, (laughs) wearing your (laughs) finest dress or... (laughs) Well, he knew that we were, that Marnix was looking for martial arts teachers. So when he said "Don't go," right, Marnix assumed that would be a good reason to go see just why he should not be there. Exactly. And, and so he took me with him, and there were some oldsters having breakfast that morning. And um, Marnix said, "Well, we can't go up and, and talk to them. Why don't we just go over to the other side of the park in a discreet area?" Because it's quite small by the river, by the Damsway River. And it's where they used to load junk, Chinese junks up. The ship, it used to be a main shipping course. So it's right. an old historic part. It's in the Taiwanese district where I was told no white man comes out alive. <laughs> and, and, Sounds uh, like our kind of place. Yeah, yeah. People used to keep telling me, don't go down that alley. <laughs> and uh, so... We did our stuff, and, and Hungi Man got up from the breakfast table with all his Ulster friends, and he came over and he said, that's Bagua, isn't it? And we said, yes. And he said, I know Bagua, too. <laughs> and we said, really? He said, yeah. And he just plummeted down and did like a very low version of Snake without even bothering to take the cigarette out of his mouth. <laughs> and And we were really impressed, and he struck me as slightly feral, like a kind of uh, borderline personality. And I had come over from America, and I thought, this is a frightening human being. I don't know if if I'd ever met a frightening human being before in my life, but this this guy was like tanned, like as dark as a walnut with a crew cut, shorts, T-shirt, sandals, and a cigarette dangling from his mouth. And he had the impression that he was about to go off at any time. (laughs) (laughs) And so Marnix kind of murmured to me sideways, you know, outside of his mouth, do you think you should, you want to study with this guy? Because Bagua teachers were very hard to find and Wong Su Chen had just died. I had originally gone to Taiwan to study with Wong and we just got back from his funeral basically. Hmm. And so we were just 
free agents trying to find someone who even knew Bagua. And so there was this character. And uh, and he went back, Hungy Men walked back to the table with his cronies and went back to talking and smoking and eating peanuts. And Marnix looked at me and he said, do you think you want to study with this guy? And I I had two two feelings and they were very contradictory. One is, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, and two is, what if this guy is the last guy on the island who actually knows Bagua? And so I was really stuck. And Marnix was sort of bearing down on me to make a decision because he knew timing was crucial. Right. And I, and I said, okay. I said, I'll, I'll, uh, I think I should try. And I was genuinely frightened because I had a vision of a Chinese master in silk robes. <laughs> and I was looking for the Bagua version of Chen Man Ching. Right. Or like Chun in the Remo Williams novels. You there know, you go. Chun. <clears throat> and I wasn't looking for like the Tasmanian devil man. <laughs> and uh, he, he came back over and Marnik said, we would like to study with you because Marnik saw it as an opportunity. And he said, okay. He said, come every morning at 730 and I'm going to charge you, you know, some flat monthly fee. And uh, he only had one other student at that time, and that was his nephew, uh, a, a really nice guy who was married to one of his daughters. So there was three of us, um, actually four, because sometimes Marnix brought his girlfriend, and uh, who was ravishingly beautiful and built like a brick shit house. So <laughs> Hung, so Hung didn't mind that. that. No, he didn't mind. He always wanted to show her applications. You <laughs> right. know? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, she didn't last long, but but she was a great translator because you see, Hung's Mandarin was hardly understandable. It was so bad his daughters would berate him about being an uncouth hick. <laughs> and, uh, and then his Taiwanese, I, I knew no Taiwanese. Marnix, who had beautiful Mandarin, also knew no Taiwanese. So it was his girlfriend who was social lubricant and she translated and postured and she was able to create the dynamic that allowed him to be very fluent and talk to us, you know, pretty continuously about what was occurring. So that was probably the first three or four months of training with him. And then she disappeared because she and Marnix got married and she went off to make wedding plans and quit coming to class. So Marnix got through the first year with me, San's girlfriend, who was planning the wedding. The nephew also got married, so another one bites the dust. And uh, eventually, by the end of the year, it was just the nephew and myself. Well, let me ask you this, Alan. At at that initial meeting, was Marnix, or or were both of you aware of who he was? Did you know he was related to Hung Yishang? Yeah. Jang Jinfong? Yeah, well, what Marnix, when Hung drew his name on the ground and Marnix looked at it, Robert Smith wrote of him as Hung Shin Min, which is, Uh. Shin is a different character. And so Marnix looked at the ground and he saw Hung Yi Min. And he wrote Shin beside it and he said, oh no, that's the wrong character. And then Marnix realized that, uh, that Robert Smith actually changed his name. 
either consciously or not consciously. So it turned out Hung Yi Min was a man that Robert Smith called Hung Xian Min. Well, tell me, I, I know uh, your actual training with him, um, you've told me before that uh, he didn't spend as much time on the forums as in actually beating the tar out of you. Well, what happened was when I went, I had been with Robert Smith for about seven years. And Robert Smith, he was big on character. And so he used all of the form training to evaluate your character. And he especially did that with the younger students because uh, that was kind of connected to how he was raised. Uh, um, at any rate, when well, I got to home, kind of a, It's not worth teaching them unless they're willing to... To yeah, put up there, with this concept. Yeah, there was there was some of that, and um, so that being the case, uh, I didn't do any application, and I w I had built up a terrific amount of frustration with being very good at forms and not being able to fight my way out of a paper bag. So, <laughs> so I I said to Hung when I got there, I said, "Look, I, you know, I know the form drill. I've worked with Sure uh, Chanchong." That's Mr. Smith's Chinese name for, you know, seven years. And he said, oh, oh, he said, I remember him. Hmm. He said he worked very hard when he was here with my brother and I, but I had to break his arm. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what? Because Robert Smith has a note in his book, Chinese Boxing, that he sheared an elbow while falling in a brothel. Nice. Being picked up by Hungy Men. And I thought, that's the most bizarre note. <laughs> <laughs> and it's typical, it's a typical CIA misinformation thing to just make up a tale to sideline people's attention. And it's almost as though the more bizarre it is, the more easily believed it is. Right. Well, Hung's side was this. Uh, when Sher Shanchung, when Robert Smith came to me, um, he said Bagua wouldn't work or something, and uh, and I did something, and he decided to use judo, and he threw me down. And I told him that if I was using Bagua, I wouldn't let him throw me down, so I said, go ahead and try to throw me again, and I broke his arm. And he used linear number 12, and he broke his arm. And so he was clear about that, and apparently at that point... Uh, there was a real breakage in more than one way because Robert Smith, who, who doesn't say this in his book, he just says that he did not last the whole way, and that's never explained, but he ended up getting shuttled to Hungi Shang to study more Xingyi, and, uh, and he never finished studying with Hungi Min, and apparently Hungi Min didn't want to teach him either after that incident. <clears throat> and so... Hung said, I said to Hung, I don't know anything about combat, uh, but I had all these years of form with Robert Smith, and now I was sure that they had known each other, and interestingly, Robert Smith failed to stay with Hungi Man, because here I, now here I am with the teacher who eventually refused to teach Robert Smith. Now, I didn't know this at that time. I didn't know it actually till years later. <clears throat> So at that time, I just knew that he had taught Robert Smith. I didn't know the arm-breaking story clearly. I didn't know what to believe. You know, you always wait and see how the facts present themselves years later. Right. Um, and then you see patterns that you didn't realize. So Hung said, right, well, if you want to learn fighting, we will just 
work on that. And I said, good, because, you know, I was just like a sponge. I was dying to try to figure out how these movements worked. So he, he would show me a movement, and then I would do it uh, maybe 20 times, and then he would walk up and say, now this is how it works. And then he would knock me back or something, and he would say, now do the movement. In other words, after I felt it and watched him do it, and he would do it slow and fast on me um, so I could digest what was happening. He wasn't just being tricky or trying to pr produce a dominance relationship. He was actually trying to show me how the technique worked through showing me the technique at a slow enough speed for me to see what was happening. Right. Well, you can talk about it all day, but until somebody, until you get the feeling of it, it's it's going to be hard for it to click. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, that's how it started, and um, we were moving pretty quick. Basically, we did the sixty-four linear of Gao in a year. So the first year I was there, all I did was linear Bagua, and he taught me an application for every single form, and if he felt like my form was not up to par. He would show me the application again, or he would show me a different application. And occasionally I would say, well, what about this? And I would do a gesture. Uh-oh. And he, he would say, oh, well, this is the response. And he would step back and open his arms and say, you go ahead and attack me. And so I would go in and attack him. And I had a, a couple of rules. One was never faint because <laughs> I knew if I fainted, I'd get hit. And, and number two, always aim for the center line, because if I tagged him on his center line, I could watch his defense more clearly. Okay. That makes so, sense. in other words, if, if a man tries to hit your navel, you will turn and go to one side or the other. So, I would always use these deep center line attacks, and I could, I could then evaluate how far he was stepping and whether he was stepping back to the side or to the, you know, frontal oblique angle. So... I kind of came up with a methodology of studying his responses to me as a result of that. And that had a big effect on, on how I taught later. But that's, that's how we got through it. Uh, the second year was much more intense because he had decided I was a, a member of the family. So I didn't pay him money. And I, I basically mopped his floor on my hands and knees every morning uh, after breakfast and ran errands for him and took his grandson to the bus stop. So that was a very uh, kind of a deep bonding experience to be with his family at close quarters and be trusted with the grandchild and, um, and get, you know, have to get along with everybody because we'd get back from practice. This is during the second year, and the daughters would all be in the kitchen making breakfast, and the wife would be up, and he had, uh, I think he had six children. There were usually three daughters in the kitchen rambling around. This is not a big kitchen. This is a third world apartment like you would find out of cinder block in South America or something. Uh huh. And so the daughters are all around and then there might be a grandkid on the floor sprawling around and one of the husbands may be coming in and out and you're talking about uh, very high humidity in Taipei in the summer and we get back dripping with sweat and Hung says, here, strip down, have cigarettes. <laughs> he just drops his clothes right there and he's standing in his boxer shorts and I drop mine and I'm in my briefs and the girls just <laughs> ignore us. 
And he sits me down in the wheelchair, and we just sit and smoke, and the girls make breakfast. <laughs> and uh, and I'm dripping with sweat, and he says, you want to get a shower? And I say, well, I'll get one after breakfast, you know. And uh, it's just a very interesting, informal, uh, native. There was something very tribal about it. And uh, you get comfortable living like that when you have that level of acceptability in a family, and, and you've never experienced uh a real tight tribal feeling in your family. And I haven't because my mother's English and my dad's American. So there's always been a sort of division. Yeah. We're always kind of stuffy about that stuff. I know it makes me nervous when you hang out at my house and your tidy whities <laughs> Just a little well, nervous. You know, I, I feel the same way. So uh, anyway, uh, that was, it was interesting to be at close quarters and to be trusted and then have this tactical thing every morning where his hands are on me, and he's jerking and pulling and prying and pinching and elbowing me and stuff. He was very careful never to hit me in the head, and he made it clear. He said, look, if you decide you want to spar, he said, wear gloves and only punch at each other and just refine your sense of distance and angle and never hit in the head because it's too dangerous. Now, later, Robert Smith and Andy Guterman did a an essay on uh, neurological sequelae or the after effects of getting hit in the head from boxing. And that essay is probably online somewhere. So it's, uh, it's brain damage and the operative words are Smith and Guterman, who was a Miami brain surgeon. Basically, Western boxers have permanent brain damage after 20 rounds. So Apparently, Hung had an instinct about this. He knew that it was just not smart to even lightly be tapping each other in the head. So, yeah, that, I mean, there, there's actually that that research topic is picking up a lot of steam, both from the boxing world and football. Yeah, now. football mm -hmm. especially. It's a it's a really big deal. What interested me is is uh, it made me think in two ways. One is, of course, you don't hit students in the head. You don't let yourself be hit in the head. But I also noticed because of his sensitivity about that, his sense of distance was extremely refined. Hmm. So you'd have a hell of a time getting close enough to jab him in the head. Right. And, and, and of course, you guys experienced that with me. And that was one of the things that Big Al noticed early on. He used to say, I'll tell you one thing about Pittman. You're not going to hit him in the head. And, uh, you know, occasionally people try. <laughs> well, coming from Big Al, who hits with his head more often than not. <laughs> we'll talk more about him next time when we can actually get him on the podcast, yeah. though. So that was that was the experience with Hung. It was a lot of hands-on, a lot of camaraderie. Uh, sometimes in the middle of breakfast, he'd say, let me show you. And he'd run from the, literally, this is a 64-year-old man. He'd trot off from the table, go down the hall, and hear his little bare feet flapping on the linoleum <laughs> and he'd come back with two swords and it's like, God, where the hell did he get these? I've cleaned the house. I never saw them. <laughs> and then he starts swinging them around and it's like there's a revolving fan on a low ceiling and there's five people sitting around the table and he's not, he's managing to swing them around at full speed without hitting any of us. And it, it was just, a, it was like something out of the three stooges what was really weird was the level of skill it took because someone watching would say, he's going to kill somebody. <laughs> but, His but, family. No, but no one was touched. 
And then he'd say, here, grab this. And he'd throw a broom at me and I'd grab it. And I'd start trying to poke him in the broom while the family's ducking and the ceiling fans going around and the baby's crying and food's on the table getting cold. And he'd say, it's like this. It's all like this. Bogwan weaponry. It's all like this. And, uh, and then he'd, you know, and then he'd tap me or, you know, show me a cut or a thrust or something. And then he'd put the weapons down and, and say, see, <laughs> and the do- and there's always one daughter that complained, Dad, why are you always doing that? You're embarrassing us. You're making us lose face. And he'd say, you know, don't worry about it. This is important. The blue pine has to know this. He's going to go back and become like Alexander the Great. <laughs> How's that worked out for you? Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to move us along to the discussion topic here in just a second. But one more thing I wanted to touch on briefly is, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bagua is often uh, called a bodyguarding style. And you've yeah. done a lot of bodyguarding work. Would you care to regale us with any tales of uh, your days as a bodyguard? Uh, well, first off, uh, there's a, I think, maybe, Craig, you remember the uh, the Chinese word for knight errant? Uh, is it is it wuxia? Yes, yes. Well, this idea of the knight errant, a lot of these guys... The knight errants uh, were martial arts people who were trained in weaponry and empty hand. And when uh, when the Manchus, I think, came in from the north, there was a uh, they would force the ruling families to move. They would take their property and their houses. So there are these caravans. Now there were also caravans with the Silk Road uh, that had armed guards traveling with them. So Asian martial arts, I think, was very much connected to the Silk Road. And so it was very much connected to bodyguarding as far as escort of goods and people. And that's in opposition to, say, being a battlefield martial art. Right. Uh, And because if you're holding a shield line, like in the Greek tradition or the tiger men in the Chinese tradition in Beijing with their, their big tiger faces on their rattan shields, you you're limited by your horizontal movement because the shields have to overlap. You have to cover one another. Um, so you don't see the jumping and turning and all that in, in line or battlefield arrangements. But if in this condition of the wuxia or the armed escort for a, a convoy or someone going along a, a route delivering goods, then it's like the, responsibility of between one and whatever eight men to move around the caravan to protect it because you don't know where the enemy's coming from so then you start seeing jumping and turning and all sorts of odd angles and you know more gymnastic stuff basically so all the chinese martial arts they they have this influence from the old armed escorts and the caravans um, but it looks like the way the architecture of the Bagua movements is devised is to work in a expansive area, but there's very little jumping. And it makes me think that it, that might be because it was designed to be inside a compound of some kind. So if you look inside the Temple of Heaven, you see these big courtyards uh, 
with expansive spaces, and Bagua has has an architecture of movement that's more compatible with that than, say, a guy on horseback. Well, uh, it's, it's it's struck me after a decade or more of doing Bagua that uh, it's almost it's it's not designed for just stepping up and fighting someone. Oh no, that's it's a, it's that's more what, about moving people around in space yeah. and moving yourself around in space than just walking up and decking someone. Yeah, well, no. yeah, basically, if you're looking at decking someone, you're looking at the spring ram mating ritual. So if you're in a if the springtime two rams meet, they're both young, they both got horns, and they butt till one wins, and then he goes off and copulates with the female. You Sounds see like the fun. same thing with young men in a bar, right? You see the same thing with boxers in a ring, and you'll notice the yeah. boxers are equally matched, and there's always women on the front row. Yeah, it's dominance and, violence, right? Yeah, it's well, it's it's a fertility right. It's to see who gets to have sex with the pretty girl. That would be me. That's me. Talk to the microphone. That's me. You all know, for a young man, that's a pertinent thing, and he'll take a few hits to to get in bed with that girl. So not just a young man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> devil take the hindermost on that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a situation of uh, of a ring battle, and it's not between species. What I mean by that is it's not a tiger and a dog. It's a ram and a ram, or it's equal matching. That's how you know it's a fertility ritual. It's equal matching, and there's inevitably a female present. Now, if you're talking about predation or survival you're talking about a species that is usually larger attacking and killing a smaller species and this is usually done from the back not the front right and and so, and so when you're dealing with that you have a totally different dynamic and all the bagua before 1940 the hands were behind you and on the perimeter of the circle and that was because it was originally designed to give you all the skills to move on someone attacking you from behind. Because obviously, if he's in front of you, there's no reason to turn around. Right. So, so originally, before 1940, and this is from Rose Lee, and she was in Beijing before 1940. She, she studied from the age of eight. Um, and her teacher was a cohort of Sun Lutong. His name was uh, Deng Yongfeng, and he was extremely skilled. He could kick. He could bring his foot under his shirt and kick out from his collar, directly under his throat, straight out, uh, while doing push hands. So he was an extremely lethal character and very skilled. He was a Xing Yi specialist. At any rate, she was the one who said, Mr. Pitterman, please remember, Bagua, before 19... 40 hands behind and i the last five years i've made that a real study and it's completely renovated my back and neck muscles and changed all the forms in fact i think i've been able to reconstruct the original single palm change which i'll have to show you guys at some some point it's very interesting it's like the best of india and china put together so so bagua has this uh this idea that there's someone behind you or there could be someone behind you, so you have to always be prepared to rotate. And that is a bodyguard's art because you don't know when you're beside the principal, the person you're protecting, which side they're going to be attacked from. And in a crowd, 
you essentially have to have an imaginary circle around your principle. So you create a, a line of movement around the principle. And if there's more than one of you, then you have to assign. And one of the old legends about Bagua is it was actually designed for eight bodyguards around one man. And it turns out that was the standard number of bodyguards for a king in India. Huh. So the eight men form a perimeter around the king. And whichever side he's attacked from, they're able to turn and respond. And then you get into the meanings of the trigrams and, and sequencing. So that's oral tradition. In other words, that was told to me by some Bagua boxers in Taiwan. There's also the structure itself, which is basically um, learning to move on a line. Any kind of Bagua you can do on a line or a circle. Uh, some systems start with a circle. Some just start on a line and end in a circle. But whichever system you're looking at, Eventually, you get to the circle, and you have to think, well, what is this for? Because if you can circle someone, it means there's space. So it's about being forming a protective ring around someone. Now, having said that, uh, there's obviously limits to that when you're in a crowd with someone. But if you have that sense of space, that's an incredible gift because your sense of space becomes your sense of distance and time. How, how fast can I move from this point to that point if he's attacked? So it's a real study of how fast you can move and cover which space when you're with someone else. Also, the angle of the movements and all of the so-called useless movements or wasted movements. Or yeah, like the, uh, pushing people. Yeah, yeah. People say, because, oh, pushing, what are you going to push? You're not going to end a fight pushing a guy. I'm like, well, push him into traffic. and. <laughs> <laughs> well, pushing is really something because if, you, if, if, they're, if they're armed and you push one man into another, you can do him that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's very, it's very relevant. It's also very relevant to keep your hand, hands from breaking because if you hit someone with a bare hand, You've really got to hit them in the right places so your hands don't break. And a lot of guys in fist fights do break their fists on people's skulls. Oh, yeah. And, and it, ha- it really happens all the time. Uh, and sometimes they're forearm because they haven't really studied fighting without gloves. And when you look at that, like in Xingyi or Bagua, you're looking at very specific ways to use your hand only to hit parts of their body that will not break your hand. So you can't just freely swing any old way. There's, there's really an art of striking that most people don't really address. As, as you guys know, uh, learning how to hit is just as important as learning what to hit. Right. So, yeah, Bagua's got that bodyguard side. Uh, people say sometimes, have you ever used it? I'll say, yes, I have. Uh, but I have to be careful because if I say... If I describe how I used it, that can be used as a li- as a um, uh, a liability. Liability. They can call a lawyer and say he's confessed that he's done this. Now, how can we get him? So, I you know I can't. Well, don't worry. Him. Nobody's listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's it's like when people ask me if I are you still there? Yes. Oh yeah. 
It's, it's like people ask me if I've ever been in a fight, just to ignore the phone. And I just say yes. And uh, if they say, well, how many fights have you had? I don't, I'm not going to say. Because you've got to realize that when you start turning conversation into a confessional, someone could come out, come after you and you, you suddenly become liable for every single thing you describe. Uh, so I don't go into details and I don't, you know, I don't keep a, a list of uh, who I've done, as it were. Right. <laughs> well, that, that's that's a fair enough place to to stop with that. Then uh, we don't want to yeah, we, we, we don't want anything incriminating to come out of this. Yeah, but but I, but I will say that uh, I have used Bogwat, but I will also say that being a bodyguard or working as a bodyguard will give you a completely different insight into motivation for knowing how to fight. Yeah. Or just, you know, when you think not about knocking someone else out in a, you know, in one of those uh, Ram versus Ram dominance, how do I get my family safely, you know, out of this alley? It's a whole different world. Absolutely. And And it's actually much more justified. I mean, flying into another country and dominating someone is, is one thing, but frowned upon, I hear. (laughs) Yeah. But, but protecting your family or your friend, you know, or your child is a completely legitimate and becoming more urgent, uh, by the day. So yeah, that's a different set of motivations. It's also a completely different geometry of movement and choreography when you're protecting someone else, because you're basically putting yourself as the wall between them and someone else, and that changes everything. Right. Yeah. So the choreography is completely different. So when people say, well, that Bagua movement won't work, most of them are thinking in the ring face-to-face, and they're right. It won't yeah, work. it's not designed for that. No, no. It's for a completely other set of values. Yeah. Well... Alan, this has been fantastic, but we're running a little long, and the kids are starting to bang on the wall of the veal pen. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) uh, we're going to have to wrap it up pretty quickly. But uh, before we go, I want you to go ahead and uh, tell everybody where you can be reached, what you're doing right now, what you're focusing on, what's new in your bag of tricks, uh, and uh, anything else you'd like to share with, uh, with the listeners. Yeah, okay, well, the new thing is the Wisdom of the Body Encyclopedia, which is on, I think I can squeeze it on two DVDs, and that's basically everything I wished I had learned before I learned martial arts. Um, and this is not a martial arts program, but a physical development program, right? Yeah, it's basically... Describe uh, it, yeah. Yeah, it's basically the evolution of yoga through child development. So you go through all the developmental movements of a child to develop flexibility and strength, which is sort of the grounding of yoga and then uh, the uh, vertical positions or the spine strengthening is Egyptian yoga and then the Amazon dance is the self-defense component which is an extremely distilled set of nine positions that combine what I would say is Bagua and Celtic wrestling. Uh, There's very little striking in it. It's mostly ducking repositioning and either strangling or going to a toehold. So it's designed for a small female to defeat a large male. So I called the self-defense component the Amazon dance. Uh, yeah. Alan, if you teach him that <laughs> stuff, you realize Craig will never get a date again in his life. <laughs> 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 you got you to think about your friends here. Yeah, that's right. 
so that's the wisdom of the body and uh that's kind of my swan song to trying to have have a, a universal tool if you could call it the swiss army knife of physical training it's a nice axis of um evaluating or assessing your overall abilities and so when i teach i basically use that as the axis of information and then off of that trunk is traditional martial arts and the stuff you guys know me for basically awesome um the the only other thing is uh I seem to be getting a lot of interest in Europe, so I'll, I'll be going back to Europe to teach. And interestingly, I'll spend a month in Zurich doing bodyguard training, huh. um, as well as other stuff. So I'll be I'll be in three or four countries from April to mid June. I'll come back for a few months. I go back to Norway, I think, in September, and maybe Italy. Um, a lot more work in Europe than here. For me, uh, you know, so that seems to be the evolving portion of the thing. My own training is that typical study of an aging man figuring out how to train while your body's aging. And uh, that's interesting, too. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm working with that, and I have a, a lot to say about it and um, yep. having a good time with it. Alan, obviously, we're going to have to have you back on at some point because uh, we can talk to you all topic. day. Yeah. And that would be a great topic for discussion. Um, and we really appreciate you doing this with us. First time out, warts and all. Uh, yeah, sure. We'll make sure and uh, link to your webpage and any other stuff you want us to as soon as we get our web presence up, which shouldn't be long. And uh, Let me know. And also, I, I know a bunch of interesting guys who, who you'd probably get a kick out of hearing. Yeah, yeah. We want to keep great. this going. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Alan. And we, yeah. we'll be in touch with you soon, but we really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today. Yeah, well, hopefully, uh, maybe I'll see you guys uh, before March. We'll do a workshop or something. Sounds fantastic. Okie doke. All right, buddy. See ya. Bye. See News, news, news from the world of martial arts. All right. So uh, recently there's been some interesting happenings going on. Uh, If you guys follow the UFC, that's where uh, a couple of guys get in and beat each other right on up. Uh, (laughs) They do that, huh? They do, they do. And evidently they... Uh, Why are they so angry, Craig? I, evidently it's that dominance thing. <laughs> they're, they're, you know. they're mating. It's, oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. the women mating. In the audience, they, yes. they, they're looking to have some sex afterwards. It's a good time. <laughs> and evidently you can make a little bit of uh, cash for it. I, I wasn't aware of how much cash was involved. But uh, the recent winner, Alistair Overeem, uh, won about $385,000 and some change. That's wow. A, that's, that's, a, that's a hell of a take. It's it is a hell of a pro take. boxing purse territory. I mean, it's not in the millions yet, but that's high. That's a lot of money. Sport. That's also a hell of a handle on that dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> high out of that. The interesting Hi-ya. thing is, however, Alistair was not able to actually take home any of this bit because uh, he has a lawsuit being filed against him uh, due to his previous uh, fight team, Golden Glory, based out of the Netherlands. Uh, they saying basically he owes them quite a hefty bit of change because he kind of split right after uh, winning that amount. So it looks like uh, we'll be hearing from him after his lawsuit, and hopefully Alistair will be able to take home that uh, $385,000. 
Uh, and you know, hopefully he'll, he'll send me a little bit of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening, uh, we'll give you the, the address at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Another news, uh, in, in Illinois, uh, the Illinois crime commission has made available free martial arts training for police, all police, uh, via Dion Ricardo and Dave Gomez, who will be teaching Filipino stick fighting to the local cops out there. So if you're in Chicago and you're listening to this, uh, you might get your ass whooped a little bit from the cops, a little harder than you used to. Sharpen you know, up the, your nunchucks, The thing people. that kills me about that is you'd think they'd teach them self-defense, like, before now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they basically just handed them a stick in the old days and said, get the whacking, and now they That's want right. them to have a little flair, a little technique, you know. <laughs> And uh, other interesting news, I'm sure a lot of you have heard this one. Umar Love of Apple Valley, California, uh, was charged with uh, sexual abuse against uh, one of his 14-year-old MMA students. And (sighs) after he got out of jail initially and made his bail, he decided to hop town. So there is a national manhunt for this fella and his girlfriend. That's the interesting bit of news for me is he still has a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why? You know, I have a feeling we're going to hear this kind of story a lot more. Indeed. Because we've heard it plenty of times before. What's wrong with martial artists out there? Guys, keep your hands off your students. Well, <laughs> well so, <laughs> you can hit him and such, but yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, or at least buy him dinner or something before you go into the whole fondling thing. It's just. Let's try to make him legal. You know, 14 years old, yeah, I don't even find them attractive. What is that? It's the position of power that gets to people. Well, I, it's... Not a, like a martial artist who run in the world. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about the priests or anything like that. I no, mean, you know. no. A, <laughs> no, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least there's not a network out there that's shuffling lecherous martial arts yeah, teachers exactly. to new parishes so they can exactly. fondle a new... Hi-ya. Hi-ya. <laughs> And another uh, bit of interesting news, Uh, something that uh, really strikes home with myself because I've been uh, waiting for something like this for a while. Um, Oddly enough, games, video games. Uh, Xbox 360 just recently uh, released Kung Fu High Impact uh, with the Kinect uh, Kinect. Oh, So you can actually stand there and throw karate chops at your TV. Exactly. Fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. And you can actually um, upload a photo or an image of yourself onto your little character. And uh, <laughs> it's a 2D side-scrolling type of action game uh, with a comic book type of feel to it. Um, and Double dragon, I've, baby. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> from what I've heard, uh, the technology is pretty decent. However, uh, you can easily cheat. You can just flail your arms around, and your little character will, you know, just stomp ass on, on the game. So it's it's definitely it's great to hear this kind of technology is coming out. You, you uh, know, a, a, a side note from the from the production desk. Um, yes, indeed. I I I have I don't understand the connect personally because I I never I play video games for a completely different. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> right. You make those thumbs big and strong. Yeah, that's exactly. what I'm talking about. You know, I mean, uh, jumping around and doing stuff. I, I've I've played around with that thing, and it 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 I don't know. It gets old for me after about ten or so. Yeah, minutes. I'd rather go out in the yard and actually do some kung fu than try to get my computer to emulate. Being a a, a nerdy 
audio guy like I am. Are we I, good? I prefer yeah. to be sedentary <laughs> when I play video games. Well, we all know where the good life is, right? True indeed. But it's it is something I'm I'm interested in checking out once the technology gets a little little bit better. I think it'd be pretty neat. Um, and before we wrap up, a couple of interesting little pieces here. China Eastern Airlines began training uh, their cabin crew. Uh, yeah. They're looking at uh, over. 2,600 stewardesses and flight attendants and all that good stuff. So far, they've uh, run a test with 20 people, training them in, in not just self-defense, but uh, chin nod, kind of the art of uh, manipulation of the limbs and all that for anti-terrorism techniques as well as uh, unruly passengers. So this is something interesting. Um, I know uh, I, I wouldn't mind being on this flight seeing some hot stewardess, you know, take down some guy. I think that would be pretty interesting. Well, Craig, I was going to say you'll neither be able to date nor fly if this keeps up. <laughs> exactly. Or just do it a lot more often. I don't know. And one last interesting bit. We all know Keanu Reeves. Uh, he's making his directorial debut in China uh, for a movie called The Man of Tai Chi, believe it or not. Um, coast, he's going to actually co-star in the movie as well with oh. Tiger Chin, one of his buddies from The Matrix. I was afraid you were going to say that. Indeed. Yeah. Hopefully he doesn't have to However, say However, it is, uh, they've got quite a bit of funding from a bunch of different companies, so it might be something interesting, or it could be a complete and utter uh, flop. Well, so, I think uh, if Keanu is actually playing a wooden training dummy, he'll do just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was my favorite bit of the first Matrix, and only because he said, what? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And Plug that's that right the bit of news. Uh, on a closing note to the news, uh, when we are recording this, uh, we're coming up on Chinese New Year, and so I'm sure you'll be seeing a lot of karate and haya and kung fu. That's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> crazy so, karate. So get out there and enjoy that, people. There'll be a lot of demonstrations going on. We won't uh, get into anything particular because who knows where you'll be listening to this. But uh, We'll both be doing our own demos, actually. Yeah. So uh, enjoy your bonus New Year. Hiya. Hiya. And uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, I'd like to thank in particular Magnificent Jay behind the boards, our producer engineer. You're quite welcome. And Tour extraordinaire. And uh, if you have any feedback, input, or would just like to thumb your nose at us, you can reach us at Hiya, that's H-I-Y-A-A, two A's and a Ya, at gmail.com. And with that being said, we hope to see you again soon. Hi there, folks. A little note from the editor's desk. Uh, what you're listening to this week was our first attempt at recording a podcast, so that combined with the fire, the flood, and the screaming two-year-olds and our inelegant choice of location <laughs> meant that we had to strike set a little early. So we have pushed back the discussion topic, uh, and we're going to get back to form versus function and a show very soon. 
Uh, so if you're wondering where that went, because we mentioned it a couple of times, well, it's not gone. It's just waiting right around the corner. So uh, thanks for your patience. 